Hi, everyone. We're just waiting for Razib. I hope he gets here. Anyone want to say something before Razib gets here? Okay, then I will just sit here and I will wait for Razib to show up. Hey, Tony. What up? Okay. Yeah, before Razib gets here, I'm curious, uh, you know, since you're such an offensive, uh, what's the word, contrarian, what's the, uh, or, or uncorrelated thinker, sorry. Uh, have you read <laughs> um, Steven Pinker's uh, 1997 New York Times piece um, about infanticide titled uh, why, why, why They Kill Their Newborns? Steven Pinker? Yeah, Steven Pinker wrote this very provocative 1997 piece about infanticide, basically, and its role in human history um, for New York, for New York Times, basically saying that um, you can be morally normal and kill a one-day-old. Ah, I see. I see. Okay, yeah, I just Googled it. I I see. Okay. Um, No, I haven't haven't read it. What do you... uh, what do you what do you think about it? Well, 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 no, I think I think it's basically compelling. I mean, a lot of people come to the abortion discussion with you know religious baggage, but if you don't have that, and you know you sort of value you know arguments based off of you know evolutionary evolutionary anthropology and things like that, then I think most people would find this very compelling. And it basically basically the 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 TLDR is that like. Mothers can and do and have killed their one-year-old. I mean, sorry, a one one-day-old or just-born uh, babies, and these women basically don't have any symptoms of you know uh, psychiatric disorders. They're not crazy. They're not like mm-hmm. evil, morally normal, uh, but they make this calculated decision as they have throughout all of human history. It makes sense. So, I mean, if you look at something like war, right, like men, like in a society goes to war and men can kill people, right? And they're otherwise psychologically normal. So like all men have it in them, right? Uh, so, you know, could it make sense for mothers with an Yeah, but that, I mean, that strikes me as 
it's plausible, right? If the situation call, you know, the situation calls for it or something is socially acceptable um, or, you know, whatever. I mean, people are in different circumstances. I mean, there are people, you know, there are people, uh, babies with uh, who maybe they're just unable to take care of, um, you know, in prehistoric times or whatever. Yeah, this makes sense. I mean, this makes sense to me. I have no reason to, uh, to doubt this. Uh, what, what prompted him to write this? Um, I think, I think like it was just one of the many, like, you know, momentary resurfacings of the abortion debate. And he was probably like, oh, you know, let's, let's pitch a piece to the New York times. (laughs) And, uh, and I think, I think that's probably why he did it. I mean, he wrote the blank slate, so he's not like basically afraid of like being like, uh, controversial. No, of course. Yeah. I've, I've had Steve on my podcast. Yeah. I, I know he's, 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 he's a brave guy and, you know, he says, says what he thinks. So I'm not surprised that, you know, he'd make an argument, uh, like that if he believes it, but I'm wondering like why, like, you know, so usually there's a reason an op-ed appears. Yeah, it was probably responding to some like development in like the uh, the debate and stuff. But yeah, anyway, yeah, that was my uh, that was my only thing. So perhaps another audience member has like a question for you in the time before Raziba right? Okay, uh, so I think I am starting to suspect that Razib forgot about this. Because if he, rem- I asked him yesterday, if he remembered, I think he would have showed up by now, or uh, he want he would have, uh, uh, you know, said something, but he didn't. So I think let me let me text Razib. Do I still have Razib? Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, good chance Razib does not show up, but we'll be here just in case he does. Um, anyone else want to ask something? If not, if Razib just never shows up, I'll just talk to you guys, uh, for like half an hour or something and then go. Sorry for this disappointment. (laughs) This is a new thing. Okay. Oh, wait, here's Razib. Okay. He just responded to me. All right, here's Sherwin. I'm gonna let Sherwin speak until Razib gets here. Go ahead, go ahead, Sherwin. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hey, what do you think about uh, what are your latest thoughts on the war in uh, Ukraine? Like, I've been following your thoughts on that for uh, I've listened to all that podcast, but like, what do you think is going on right now? Do you think Russia can still pull off a victory? Yeah, I mean, it all depends on how how you define victory. Um, you know, there it seems like this is a war that really favors the defense. Like, it's hard to conquer territory, but once you do conquer territory, like you hold on to it. So Russia conquered a bunch of territory early, like some places in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and then the southern region and Kherson, and then really like it pulled back from everywhere else, and then really nothing happened. And so I was following it daily. And then, you know, what was going on. And then eventually, um, you know, I stopped following that close just because nothing was going on. It's been for a few weeks. The lines are pretty much, uh, uh, the lines are pretty much what they are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, it looks like stalemate, maybe an indefinite stalemate. Um, the other possibility is that Ukraine just, you know, it's so hard, it's so hard to predict. Ukraine uh, is, has basically unlimited support from the West. It can go on forever, but its economy is also being crushed. I mean, its economy, they 
predicted was going to be 45% less uh, this year, while Russia only lost something like 11%. Ukraine is emptying out, you know, like 25% of Latin refugees, but, you know, they seem to have a will to fight and they they get a lot of weapons. So who knows? Um, who knows what's the, um, you know, what's, what's the, uh, what's the balance here and what will happen? Um, I, mm, more pessimistic, you know. I think I'm, I'm more pessimistic than most people that we'll get a uh, uh, a peaceful solution to this. I think wars are hard when basically uh, two sides, you know, people defend their own territory more than they defend, more than they're willing to go out and fight for new territory. But when you have land that both sides think think is their own, uh, that's that's difficult. So Russia to Russia, Crimea is Russia now, right? Ukraine's position is Crimea. So Ukraine, forget about Crimea. I mean, it's it's uh, that's you don't even get to that. Ukraine would have to do a lot to to even get to uh, eventually trying to take that back. Uh, but then you have like the Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, which uh, they've been claimed by uh, they've been claimed by uh, the, the the governments that Russia has recognized in the area. So like you know, it's like it, it, there's there's no clear lines here. There's no clear uh, place where you could just you know uh, just uh, draw a line and say that's it. And then the U.S. and you know Europe, you know, the, the America has no political or uh, sort of ideological or emotional interest in helping to end this war. Uh, so yeah, not not much is happening right now. But I you know I think that uh, I think that this is going to go on for a very long time. Uh, but thanks for your question. Hey, Razib, you're muted. What's up? So yeah, I was just taking while we waited for you. I was just taking some uh, some questions from uh, some some of our friends here. Uh, so this thing, I'm just gonna like you know, this is like just shooting the breeze. I wanted you to talk about your experience um, as a brown body in America. So you grew up as a son, a humble son of hotel owners. Is that right? Uh, yeah, my real name is Rizzi Patel. Is it really? That's a joke. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was gonna like, am I gonna like continue with this? Because like sometimes, sometimes I'll pretend. Um. Yeah. No. (laughs) Not the. I mean. Wait. Didn't you say uh, that at one point? No. I wasn't a joke. I thought I heard you say that. Your parents. Your parents were not hotel owners. You have to be a hotel. Yeah. Um. I might have been lying to you, (laughs) and I forgot to correct you. No. My dad was a college professor. Oh, okay. I might be thinking of something else, but you were like the only. Are you you were about another brown body because you're confusing brown bodies with each other. I know that's that is the, you know that's the hazard. You you're confusing me with Dorkesh because he's a Patel. <laughs> <laughs> so I was closer. So you were a college professor. You you came from an intellectually elite background. What kind of what was what was uh, what field was your dad in? Uh, my, my dad was a chemist, physical okay. chemist. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you were like the old. Were you like the only Indian kid in Washington, right? Uh, Oregon. No. So uh, when I was, that's not uh, that's not true because when I was um, in ninth grade, uh, 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 the Patels uh, did buy the hotel, and so there was another brown family in the county. Okay. In the you you yeah. know what? I was probably listening to your podcast on like two times speed, and I just got that story. Uh, I yeah, just got yeah. <laughs> I just got the story mixed up. I did, I, did get, I did get confused for him. So he's a really bad driver, and at the end of high school, he almost ran over the um the coach, uh-huh. the gym teacher, and I'm I'm like walking down the hall, and the coach was like running to me, and I think he's about to murder me. 
Uh-huh. He, he, was, he was almost run over by a brown guy. He was almost run over by the Patel son. And uh-huh. like my friend George was like, um, you know, this brown body doesn't have a car. The other brown body does have a car. And so like, the coach was like, okay, I'm going to go find him, you know, but. Were you the only that. two? So were you the only two South Asians around? Uh, there were a couple of people at the local university, but according to the census, we were the only two families in the county. Uh-huh. Okay. So, Do you have any yeah. other any other uh, colored bodies? Did you have any black people, Mexicans or anything? Yeah, yeah. There was the Trice family. Um, there were the Token Black family and uh, in the <laughs> county. And uh, no, I'm not. I'm not joking. Um, uh, yeah, and then there was like the girl whose parents owned the Chinese restaurant. There was Turtle, he was Mexican. Um, and oh, there was a couple of adopted kids. Yeah, there was adopted Chinese kid and an adopted brown kid. Uh, so that was that's it. I think. Yeah, yeah. Ah, that's interesting. So I dev- there was no. Was this a high? This must have been a high class area because I never saw any. Adopted children where I lived, especially. No, I'm trying I, to think if anybody I knew adopted. Yeah, it was. It's not high class. I was like, um, for the. I mean, I because I've already said it. People know, so it's not like self doxing. I grew up in the Grand Oregon, so it wasn't high class. Um, it was a. Uh, it was just rural, and there were a lot of Mormons. Um, the adoptees were adopted into evangelical Christian families, though. So uh-huh. it, it was that I think actually. Um, I know the. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's what it was. Um, they were just like conservative Christians. Do you have any? Um, by the way, people, the, those of you who are listening live, who are not, uh, who are not, call-in users, it helps with the uh, it helps with the analytics if like you actually have an account and you're here. So no pressure, but if you if you like me or you like Razib and you want other people to find us, just do an account. It takes like two seconds. Um, and they could be us. there could be someone there could be someone recording this, you know. Oh, it's all recorded. Is that oh. is, is this is this is this a problem, Razib? Have you have you uh, lived your life in a way in which <laughs> I don't want to be canceled? I don't want to be canceled again. <laughs> you had a you had a big one with the New York Times. You were a New York Times op-ed writer for like five minutes, weren't you? Yeah, no, no, no. Like my latest cancellation was in January, I think. I would say so. You were you canceled know. from uh, from what? Uh, the E.O. Wilson thing uh, triggered a lot of academics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you expect? I mean, it's like, it's academia at this point. Like, when you, when I knew you were putting that together, that letter, I was like, what is this guy, does this guy know? What, like, has this guy been paying attention to, like, what the academy is now? Because <laughs> I, I, you know, there's no way anyone is putting their name on a letter, like, with you or me, right? Or anybody who's just, like, you know, the least bit problematic. Yeah. I mean, well, it, 30, it, people 30 people did, so. Well, they they will, but I mean, yeah, like they might, you know, it's an oversight, right? They 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 don't know, right? They, they're going to get blowback. That's, that's sort of. I did actually, tell, I did tell them in private email that they, they didn't understand. So, um, a lot of them didn't care actually at the end, but they're older, so they don't care. Yeah. Um, so the uh, so you grew up among a bunch of Mormons. So did, did do you still have do you still have friends from like your like uh, grade school, high school days, or have you lost touch with those people? Uh, not not grade school. So I actually uh, just uh, um, I grew up in in, Nor- in upstate New York. Uh, my father uh, got his PhD at SUNY Albany. Uh, so I don't really. I mean, I'm actually Facebook friends with a couple people from grade school because I remember their names, but I'm not really friends with anyone from grade school except for. 
I mean, no, I'm not really friends with anyone from grade school or middle school because uh, I was in uh, Western Pennsylvania for a year in Amish country. But uh, from from uh, where I grew up in Oregon, I am kind of friends with some people, and I did go to the 20 year reunion. Um, my my family they moved away from that area a long time ago, so I don't go often. But uh, it's weird because um, I don't want to say I'm famous, but uh, I'm like one of the few Googleable people from the high school, you know. Uh-huh. Like periodically, like I'll just show up and uh, like on the media somehow, or you know, they'll be reading Hillbilly Elegy and I'll be cited in there, you know, that sort of thing. And they'll like they'll tag me on Facebook. You're, like, you're cited in Hillbilly Elegy? How? Uh, I introduced J.D. Vance to the culture of the Scots Irish. Oh, okay, interesting. You know who cited me in his book? Donald Trump Jr. Well, Pap, you can't have cited me in his book. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it was, it's you not a competition. Why, you know why, <laughs> no, I'll take Pap Buchanan, yeah, over, over those yeah. other ones. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so they, they see you, they, you're, you're famous. You're, you're big, you know, I, I don't think I was, a, you know, yeah, I was on, when I was on Tucker, like somebody I knew a long time ago, uh, reached out. TV is just different. TV will reach, you know, uh, yeah, everybody. I mean, yeah. And I have like two friends that I'll talk to, like, that I'll talk to like once a year or like once every few years, you know, not very common at all. And it's just interesting to see like how, you know, how they change over time. It's like there, you know, there's not, it's not an accident they saw me on Tucker. Like they were like people who were completely apolitical. I grew up in, you know, in a much less, I think, nicer area than you. So I have insights into the, uh, into the well, you know what we call the working class. Although I, I sort of hate that phrase, but like you know, uh, less co- you know people who are uh, less likely to be college educated, um, and yeah. like you know, there's been like a super politicization. So like you know, my friends who would think like when I was growing up, they would be like, "Oh, politics, that's boring. That's just guys in suits. That's like something for nerds, people who are lame." And now it's like you know, I love guns and, you know, I, I, you know, this gender ideology and it's like, you know, I hate abortion and like, you know, illegal immigrants are doing it. I mean, there was always, there was always like the immigrant thing and like the race stuff was always uh, sort of there, but uh, it didn't really have political expression. It wasn't like, oh, Bill Clinton, that guy is woke. That guy is like anti-white. There was nothing like like that. It wasn't like the Republicans were on my side. There was nothing like that when I was growing up. Uh, but you see, you see politicization of people, uh, which is very interesting. I try to keep, I try to keep up with uh, people I knew growing up, uh, people from different backgrounds, because it's hard. Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 hard. To, you get into a bubble, right, very easily, and you have to sort of yeah, work yeah. to to not be in it. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, so I guess, like, let me for your for the people in the audience. Uh, uh, so in terms of where I grew up, like, let me just like situate it really quickly since you kind of, so I grew up in Northeast Oregon. So this is not, uh, this is not Western Oregon. This is more like uh greater Idaho for sure. Um, uh, and you know, it's obviously overwhelmingly white. I mean, it's less white now. Like, you know, I'm talking, I grew up in the, in the 1990s. Uh, and, uh, it's like, you know, probably like 15 the Valley is probably Grand Ronde Valley where I grew up. It's probably like 15% Mormon, but Mormons were actually like really, really culturally prominent because they have high asabia, social cohesion. So they're disproportionately mm-hmm. represented among uh, entrepreneurial and business classes, for example, right? And the Mormon families are obviously quite large. So probably like in the younger cohorts, they're more than 15. Um, and so a lot of Mormons in the area, it was 
about 75% Republican. Like, that's literally how many people voted for, like, George, or vo- voted for the Republican candidate, you know, like, in the state house or whatever, and stuff like that. So it's, like, pretty conservative, intermontane West. Uh, you know, if you guys have watched, um, what was it, um, that movie, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. There's a little bit of, like, there's a lot of Napoleon Dynamite flavor to it. So uh, that's where I grew up. I wouldn't say it was like upper, like I actually looked at my high school and the statistics. It's like exactly like in the in the median nationally for SAT. So the the high school had you know the kids of doctors and like successful business people, and then it had like cowboys and it had people that were like you know the children of single parents. You know, so it was like a catch all for like you know that side of the valley, um, and that was like the, that was kind of the cosmopolitan area of the valley because I had a university. Um, and my dad worked there for a while. And so, uh, that's the situation that I grew up in. Um, and you know, I was like exceptional enough in my brown body, uh, that, you know, when I lived in Portland for a while, there'd be people from the grand and people would just come up to me and they would say, Hey, you're Razib. And I wouldn't know who they were, but they would know who I was. <laughs> I was the only person I, you know, it was me. And I'm not going to say the other guy, I'm not going to dox the other guy. Well, I mean, I can like his name's not that rare. Uh, Jaten were the only other brown people, but Jaten was only there for a couple of years, and uh, so like I was there from when I was thirteen, and so I was pretty well known in the valley, and uh, yeah, so uh, that was like kind of my experience, like growing up as a minority, and it was okay. I mean, you know, you know, some standard racism here and there. You know, Oregon uh, was had a reputation as like the most racist state north of Mason Dixon. Uh, uh-huh. They used to the whole state, except for like four blocks in Northeast Portland, uh, was a sundown state. I mean, yeah. it's not that used to be, it used to be literally true. So if you were a jazz musician that would play in Seattle, uh, uh, and like if you played in Portland, you'd have to stay in Vancouver, Washington, across the, across the river. And back during the day of trains, the trains would actually stop in Vancouver to drop off the um, musicians for the hotels because they can't stay in Portland. And then they would get on the train and the trains would not stop until Wairika, California, because no hotel in Oregon would take black people. How you know? until how long was this? Probably until, you know, like World War after right after World War Two and then start, things started changing. But I mean, you know, the um the local university, uh it, it's probably changed now, but the gym, the basketball gym that I played basketball at a lot of the time, um, it was named after a guy who was the leader of the clan in the area in the nineteen twenties. So you know, the clan was it was like Indiana. It was a little bit like Indiana, right? Um, Indiana West is, and like you know, I grew up in an area that, uh, especially in the, in the mountainous areas, there are a lot of Okies. You know, uh, so like Okies that arrived in like the early 20th century, and in the 1930s. And so was that was that by the time you were growing up? Was that with those sort of attitudes were sort of you know just completely gone, or was that do you think there was you you might not have anything to compare it to, right? But what, what do yeah, you think? Yeah, legacy um, was there. Yeah, some of them were st- some of them were still around. Some of them were still around in terms of, you know, people still use the word colored, you know, um, and uh, the you know, there's still, still some racism. Um, what was it like? Uh, I forget his last name now, but this kid Dan was explaining one time during lunch how like uh, interracial uh, you can't have interracial marriage because the kids have like genetic problems, something like that. You know, yeah. so. No, there's still people with like those kind of attitudes. I mean, it wasn't like no, but I don't know if that has anything to do with Oregon. So I was in uh, yeah, southwest suburbs of Chicago, and I mean, it's it sounds like it was much more 
racist when I was growing up. I mean, because they like, you know, they racial slurs were normal, like around the people that I, I hung around with. Uh, did you, did you, was that normal for you or was it completely, was that, was, is that something you didn't see? Um, yeah, I, 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 hung, I mean, so, uh, I didn't hang, I mean, there were certain types of kids that if I, if I hung out with the Cowboys, yeah. So I <laughs> right. Like, you know, like, you know, they're urban Cowboys, like they dress like Cowboys. And they right. kind of affect an air of like, hey, I'm a Cowboy, but I actually worked as a, as a ranch hand for a summer. So I did like, I was a Cowboy for a summer. Technically, ah, that's so, interesting. Yeah. So, if like okay, so like the median kid at your school, if his sister like dated a black guy, like would that be something they were upset about or no? Um, I think there's a fifty-fifty chance. There actually, there was a kid. I think he was he was like hit. There was a kid named um, Field, and he was not a trice. He was a black kid that wasn't a trice. And uh, well, what's the trice? And, uh, uh, the Trice family is the black family in town. Although by my okay. by the, by uh, my generation, they're half black, and I think so. Like the generation, like probably the Zoomer Trices are fourth black. Anyway, um, uh, so that the 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 Trice like great grandfather came into uh, is uh is um like came into the valley like I don't know like in the forties or something, you know. Um, but uh, so the field was black and he wasn't a Trice. Um, and he, I, I heard a, a teacher told a story about like, so actually one of the shop teacher's daughters was dating him when the shop teacher found out he uh-huh. made her, he made a breakup with him. So uh-huh. one of my other teachers told the story and then like, I, we, we, we all figured out it was a shop teacher. So it was uh-huh. like, so, it, it, you know, like people would date. I mean, it wasn't, there was some taboo, but it wasn't like unknown. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. There was a. Yeah, there was a big taboo. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It looks like I, I think I grew up when well, I talk to other like, people. I, the, I think yeah. the issue here is like there was no racial polarization in my school because there were hardly any non-whites. Maybe, maybe you're right. So there was no there was no black people at my school, or there was you know a couple, like a handful, like three or something. But then like we were in the south side. Of, we were in the suburbs, right outside Chicago, yeah. right. Um, and so you go like you know it's a it's a it's a two minute drive right it's nothing you could walk uh, to the to the, basically the American uh, inner city not the worst parts of the city you need like a five minute drive or like a ten minute drive but you get like one one minute to get to like you know the uh, Chicago school district and then like five minutes you know not a five minutes I'd say you know twenty twenty minutes to get to like the University of Chicago so it's like University of Chicago is like on you know 50th like you know I I grew up around like 100th right and so like the streets are just go just go down when they're south so you know it's like it's 50 blocks away from University of Chicago University of Chicago is a terrible terrible uh place it's you know it's it's like 100 years 100 it was like built 100 100 something years ago and so it's in the middle you know it's in the middle of this area that just went terrible uh and now is um you know, it's a really it's a bad place. I mean, if you if you walk uh, uh, like right off campus when I was at the University of Chicago Law School, like you wouldn't do that during the day. You wouldn't just walk like you know south of campus like three blocks. You would stick out like a yeah. sore thumb, and it was just you know scary for just like a normal uh, normal person not from the area. Um, so maybe that's why. Maybe we had racial polarization, not in the sense that like you know we had black people right there, uh, but it was like it was not that far away. And, you know, you can like watch the news and you, you know, you can, you have interactions and, you know, that, that changes people's, uh, that changes people's attitudes, I'm sure. Yeah. There was a, there was a black woman that drove through town once. 
I, I remember like we were playing basketball and we saw her driving through and like someone was like, Whoa, she's black. I she wasn't <laughs> from town, just driving through town. So just, uh-huh. it's it was noticeable when there were black people around. Um uh-huh. so that's not too many. No, it's not it wasn't yeah, that was not you know, we we yeah, it was like you go to the stores like where I live, it was like pretty I mean it was like fifty fifty, but then you go to the public school because the residential segregation is all based on schooling, right? Um, yeah. So you go to school, and the school of my school is, you know, 90% white, and the rest are, like, Mexicans and Arabs, uh, or, you know, 80%, 90%, something. And then, like, the stores are, like, you know, blacks are, like, maybe 30%, uh, for, you know, Mexicans, and there's a lot of Mexicans, too. Uh, and so, yeah, the you know, Chicago, um, these, these Midwest inner cities, I, people don't under... Uh, Stand the racial geography of them. I mean, I lived on the West Coast. I mean, you lived in the, uh, uh, you know, nor- nor- uh, Northwest. It's just a, com- it's just a completely, uh, completely different reality uh, from what a lot of people, a lot of people know. The race stuff is just. It, it, there's a very unique dynamic there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like uh, the the segregation and uh, kind of almost like block by block dynamics. Because uh, you know, I have been to Chicago and I've seen it too. Yeah. So, Razib, you are a um, you're an entrepreneur now, right? You're not. You're no longer a uh, uh, you're no longer an academic. Did you ever get your PhD? No, I didn't finish. Oh, Razib, Razib, <laughs> you're doing much good. Yeah. It's okay. You're doing. You're doing. Did you ever think about just doing your like just doing like a uh, like a like the you know the half-assing like the uh, dissertation and just turning it in just to just to get it uh, get the no, credential. I took leave, so I thought I was going to go back, but I, I didn't end up like uh, going back. Yeah. So now, once uh, you get a taste, once you get a taste of the outside world, uh, it's like, wait a minute, there, there's a lot more opportunities here. At least that was my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I was asked. So yeah. So I was asking, like, is there anything? Is there anything cool happening in the uh, in the bioinformation space? Anything that we should look forward to? Any kind of big technologies companies you're excited about? You could talk about your own work, or you could just talk in generalities. Either. So I thought you want you want to go off topic. Uh, you know, I think you want to keep talking about race. People can ask us questions. I think we'll we'll, we'll do Q and A. In terms of like exciting, um, what I would say is uh, in the next uh, five years. Um, in the genomic sequencing space, uh, we, we basically had, uh, for the last decade, actually for almost like 15 years, we've had, a uh, we've had like stagnant, um, you know, the, the technology has inclu- improved on the margin. And so that's been like a huge improvement. So the average cost of a whole genome has gone from 20,000 to $300. Okay. But the improvement has been on, on the margin. So it went from, it went from say like three billion to twenty thousand in ten years, the first ten years, and then the second ten years, it went from twenty thousand to three hundred dollars, and so um, you can't really get too much cheaper. Uh, uh-huh. But but um, there are ways where the sequence can get easier to assemble and utilize and deploy so that it can scale up in terms of the utility and the ubiquity, and so the next like eight years for, you know, basically the rest of the 2020s, I think what we're going to really start to see is a transition uh, towards new technologies in particular long read technologies. And uh, that's really going to transform things. And there is a dream that in about a decade, like, you know, people could just sequence themselves in the privacy of their own home um, with like a tiny drop of blood through a special device. No, I'm just joking. Not, not through a tiny drop of blood, but um, you know, there could be a, there could be um 
some sort of device that takes saliva or some cheek tissue and uh the compute computational uh like horsepower needed to do the sequence analysis is going to be way way reduced and so i think uh I'm excited about that, and once that happens, like we're gonna see an explosion of more data. You know, as long as people aren't paranoid about their data, they will start sequencing themselves like in really, really large numbers. Mm-hmm. So, are they? Um, so, it's just about building statistical patterns. You just need a lot of data and computer power, and you need cheap genome. Uh, genome, and it seems like it's sort of uh, it's sort of sort of seems like it's automatic at that point, right? There aren't a lot like the you know the, the traits like. Um, you know, the personality traits may be a little more complicated, but like diseases and stuff, it's it's just about data and, uh, and uh, you know, statistical power, right? That's that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for a lot of the diseases even, you're not even looking for complex traits. You're looking for maybe rare diseases that run in families. So you need like a good genome sequence with large sample sizes, and then you can pick out these needles in the haystack, right? But you have a large enough sample size and you can pick out a small effect size. You know, so this can help. So something like embryo, that's like embryo selection. That's the immediate, uh, that's the, you know, the, the immediate application. Uh, what about, what about CRISPR? What about just going in there and engineering? How, like when we know some gene has a deleterious effect, uh, how close are we to being able to do something about that? Uh, we're pretty close for some of them. So uh, really what they're targeting first are ALS and uh, cystic fibrosis. So the genes for ALS and cystic fibrosis are known. Uh, ALS uh, you know, it's a degenerative disease. Uh, I, I think, what's the name? Uh, Stephen Hawking had ALS, right? A form of ALS. There's multiple forms. Mm-hmm. There's multiple severities. Um, obviously, and then cystic fibrosis, you know, with the lungs. They're targeting those because, you know, people with these diseases tend to be, they tend to die in their 40s. Mm-hmm. And so if you're an adult with ALS or cystic fibrosis, you will take the risk of CRISPR genetic engineering now, right? Yeah. Because like, okay, like let's say, so there could be a chance where it's like imperfect and there are issues and you get cancer when you're 65. Well, at least you make it to 65, right? So mm-hmm. ultimately um, it's going to start out with those sorts of diseases that have like, you know, that sort of more mortality risk, like in the medium to short term for these people. But eventually as the technology gets better and better, you know, I can imagine a situation where, so for example, I know somebody uh, I don't know the reasons, but uh, they, their daughter their daughter has was born with cystic fibrosis. Their daughter is now two years old, and I did say I said, you know, I think your daughter, I think your daughter will live into probably her seventies or eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think she'll she'll grow into adulthood with cystic fibrosis. I think that within ten years, by the time she's a teenager, gene therapy will be so good for cystic fibrosis that mm-hmm. people will be routinely transfected now that doesn't mean that's probably going to cure everything in terms of the lung will still have some problems but you know even having like 10 to 20 percent normal function uh would would totally transform their morbidity uh so that like you know they're not gonna be a marathon runner but you wouldn't actually be able to tell the difference in day-to-day life you know yeah yeah so that's how how do you yeah go ahead that's what so that's gonna happen like that's happening now the trials are now yeah, and what is it? What is it when they uh, when they give you gene therapy? What do they do exactly? Because I know there's there's the genome, and the genome is in all your cells, right? And so, yeah. uh, what do you, what do they do? How, how exactly do they do they change them all, or do they change yeah, them all? Yeah, so they don't they don't change them all, but um, they change enough of them to make a difference. Um, so basically, imagine that you have like a, a genetic defect, and so okay, you don't have any of the good gene in your tissue, um, and so like let's talk about cystic fibrosis, like that, that's a concrete case. 
you don't have any of the good gene in your tissue, your lungs. I mean, basically they're not producing like the right type of like mucus or something. Uh, the saline concentration is off and like, you just kind of like eventually just die your lung, you just croak, you know? Well, what mm-hmm. you would do is like, you would do some sort of transfection. Like I think like they, you know, they used to use viral to infect the cells, but basically you need something to get into the cells. Once something gets into the cells, uh, so the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, macromolecule, what it does is it basically cuts, right? So it cuts a really specific region out of the sequence. And after the cut happens, uh, you need to have um, the other type of segment, like a good gene, like the good gene in there. Because what happens is then uh, after you cut it, uh, the DNA wants to repair itself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that way it'll repair itself by inserting the good gene. Right. And so all of a sudden, some of your cells have the good gene and not the bad gene integrated into it, and then they'll reproduce. Now, wow. the issue, the issue with, with a lot of these technologies now is what they call the delivery problem. How do you get the good gene in? You know, how do you how do you transfect them correctly and all this stuff? So that's like the big, big practical, you know, um, <clears throat> problem, you know, with lung tissue. I think it's actually not that difficult or I don't want to say that because like, you know, comparatively, it's not that difficult uh, because, uh, you know, you don't need 100% lung tissue function uh, to be, to be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you, you transfect or, you know, you change like a small number of the cells. That's enough that reproduces down the generation and creates a germline. Uh, another, another application of CRISPR Cas9 technology probably in the near future is going to be uh, cancer genomics. Right. And, uh, so when you sequence when you sequence your genome, you do it once. But when you do sequence your cancers lines, you have to do it all the time because they're mutating, right? So one, there's mm-hmm. gonna be a lot of sequencing of that, a lot of tissue specific sequencing, and then um, eventually they're probably gonna target cancers. They're gonna target the cancer mutations by you know putting in non cancerous because there's there's oncogenes, there's like you know genetic problems that are going on why those cells are not dying and they're reproducing really fast and stuff like that you need to fix it fix it with good cells like obviously the whole problem with cancer though is uh there's always selection for the 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 cells that are reproducing fast like crazy because selection favors high reproduction right so that's always a difficult uh, issue and that's why like chemotherapy is so crappy because it you know i mean it's trying to kill a lot of things in your body you know including it's trying to kill you kind of it's trying to like put you to death's door but not quite and then allows you to come back and so um, you know, I think that that's a dream uh, with CRISPR. And then, of course, you're talking about embryo selection and all these other evil things. And you know, that's probably for the next generation, you know, maybe it's for our kids. Yeah. Well, people do embryo selection now. I mean, they they, they, yeah. they have uh, for simple stuff, right? Yeah. You can do screening. You can do screening. Yeah. Yeah. You can do screening and then, yeah, that, 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 that's what embryo, that's all embryo selection is, right? You can do, yeah. um, you could do, you could do a whole like, uh, you know, it doesn't explain a lot of the variation, but you know, I've heard that you can do um, like if you want real outlier, like you outliers, like you can you know increase the chance you're going to be an outlier on on cognitive traits. Like apparently, you can do that now. Um, yeah. Although usually it's not going to have uh, a big effect based on based on what we know. Okay, all that stuff's exciting. How fast is this moving? Is it much better to have cancer? Like, are you much better positioned now than you were five years ago? And are you going to be in a better position? By the way, I just saw your tweet. It blew my mind. Two two out of uh, LFO died young of cancer. How did you find that out? Yeah. Uh, 
I I was like I, I was curious about like what happened to the boy bands on Wikipedia. Yeah, I go to oh, and I know Rich Cronin is dead. Yeah, uh, I know Rich Cronin because he was like a big thing about like cancer in the two thousands when he was in his I don't know like thirties. But then it turned out that uh, I don't know what the other guys were called, but one of the other guys, Devin Lima, died of cancer at forty one. So yeah, like, that's crazy. Like that, that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, that is yeah. that the odds of that are not good when someone of your I mean, age like, or younger yeah, dies it's like, it's of a like, disease it's like, yeah it's like the chinese food they ate you know <laughs> you know i was thinking was it one was leukemia and um yeah it's, it's just a coincidence i was thinking like maybe they smoked like the same thing or something but you know yeah i don't know <laughs> mass i don't know that was just so weird that like two of them like the, uh, the last guy brad fischetti he must be a little paranoid <laughs> yeah it's the elephant I mean, curse yeah, he's still standing. He's the last. He's like you know, his like uh, bandmates both died of cancer young. It's crazy. And they were they were sort of the edgy boy band, right? It's like I stole your honey and I stole your bike. Like Backstreet Boys wouldn't say that. No, no, they were they were edgier. Uh, yeah, and like their their songs were just. I mean, they were like they like the Abercrombie and Fitch girl, you know, like that sort of stuff. Like they they were a little edgier. Yeah, a little better. edgier, but not in a weird way. I don't know if the, I don't know if yeah, I don't know if there's any. Oh, I you know, I was talking to somebody today. Do you think the uh, do you think the song is the wigger phenomenon still a thing? Because would the song "Pretty Fly for a White Guy" would that make sense to young people today? Uh, no, I think it'd be problematic somehow. I think you're appropriating. <laughs> but do, do do people like that even uh, exist though? No. I don't know. I mean, I'm not young enough, but I, I, it seems like that would be problematic to culturally appropriate that way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I, having dreadlocks. Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, right. I think I think you're right. Uh, so, anyways, uh, Razib, I am not gonna keep you here all night. Uh, let's just take some callers, and then I mean, whenever you need to, whenever you need yeah. to be on your way, uh, you can go. I think we'll go at least until the end of the hour. So, if anyone wants to chat, just push a button and then we will let you we'll, we'll answer your question yo jeff what's up man i, I got I, I see some familiar faces oh tony what's up yeah, what's hey tony when tony spoke before you got here yo what's up man yeah ben oh i think i know who ben is i don't know who marco is i'm just looking at these people james <laughs> i know sizzler sizzler is one of my reply guys he's a pretty smart one i know tamar He's also uh, he's he's a he's a guy on Twitter too. But if we don't have questions, then we will. I guess uh, my any news. Okay. Oh, oh, somebody's doing it in the chat. Somebody. Right. Okay, my racial identity is not interested. So yeah. Any... Well, somebody. Well, somebody put a question in the chat. So any news? Oh, let's just let this guy speak. Though. Let's let Mister Ledford. 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 <laughs> Go ahead, Ledford. You're muted. You always start muted. Ledford, my friend, can you unmute uh, I'll, yourself? I'll, I'll answer this question. Like you can follow up. So uh, I don't think there's any updates. And so what Ledford is talking about is that in 2015, Pontus Skoglund uh, found that uh, Amazonian Indians have a genetic affinity uh, a component of their ancestry, a genetic affinity with uh, 
basically uh, people from South, indigenous people from Southeast Asia, from you know, Australasians, like that sort of people from the Andamans all the way to the Australian, you know, Aborigines. Uh, the affinity is, is pretty ancient. Uh, it's not like uh, they're descended from Aborigines in part. It's basically like when you take East Asian populations, you have two big clades. One is a northern one and one is a southern one. But it turns out for some reason, some of the people that were in Siberia probably were affiliated with the southern one. And that led to some of the ancestry in the indigenous people of the New World, mostly in South America, tropical South America, probably. The whole thing is still somewhat mysterious. And uh, I think what most people think is probably... um, this is an ancestral component that arrived before the last glacial maximum uh, at really low density. And this is like the remnant in these populations. That's probably what's going on. But no, there's no update. Uh, uh, at some point, someone's going to have to figure this out. But it's really, really perplexing still. Yeah, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, so, yeah I thought that I was uh, following that a little bit on Greg. Cochran's uh, blog, and uh, it's just fun to try to imagine ways they might have uh, gotten there, uh, you know, a storm across the Pacific or something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I was curious if, uh, if there were any, any, any new theories, any new um, hypothesis as to, well, or maybe as you say, that's just an ancestral component that was there and people that came over, um, in the ways we thought well no wait there was that uh archaeological find where they found a footprint or that something related to that yeah so the big the big change over the last like two or three years is basically so there used to be a hypothesis 20 years ago called clovis first which is basically like native americans show up you know 13,000 14,000 13,000 really years ago they expand really fast blah 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 uh, there have been more and more finds that are earlier. So, you know, there's a, there's a cave in, uh, in Oregon. Uh, there's a place in Pennsylvania. There's Monteverde in Chile. They go back to 15,000 years ago. So it's before Clovis. But now there's a site in Mexico and there's a site in New Mexico and some other sites. But really, these two sites are good, are the, are the best ones, where uh, obviously it looks like there were human beings here before the last glacial maximum, which is around 20,000 years ago. The last glacial maximum is a big deal because that's literally when the, the sheets were at their max. And it's just, it seems like almost impossible that humans could have crossed during that period. So it would have been before or after. And so now they, they pretty much assume that humans were in the new world before the peak of the last glacial maximum, maybe like 22, 23,000 at the latest, maybe earlier. So who are these people? Uh, my hypothesis is these are the ancestors of these uh, Australasian, or these are the, these were the relatives of the Australasian-related people. And uh, the Tianyun Man, which is a sample from central China, um, there's some of the ancient DNA in Northeast Asia looks a little weird and wonky. Uh, and so I think there was a lot more structure and variation in East Asia before the rapid expansion of the Han and related people in, in China. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know. I just, it's just fun to think about, you know, and then yeah. you wonder like, why didn't they, uh, eat all the mastodons when they got there? Uh, yeah, uh, they're really bad tools. Like they're, yeah. they're really bad tools. The, the tools that they find in Mexico are really primitive. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Uh, next uh, up, Mr. Thanks. Ives.
Go ahead. No, it drives, yeah. Hello? Mr. Ives? Okay, well, Jeff? Yeah, what's up, Jeff? What's up, bro? Hey, Rich. Hey, Razib. I have a question about brown bodies and white spaces. Um, I'm actually just wondering if you guys have any... This is a white space. Like, I don't know what your background looks like, but it looks like a totally white space. (laughs) That's a a a beige space. It's close. Um, I was wondering if you guys have any updated predictions on what's going to happen with wokeness in academic institutions. To me, uh, I I work at Stanford. It seems like it's almost at 100% pervasiveness. I'm kind of wondering if you guys see it like reaching equilibrium where there's just like some people that decide to participate in all the DEI stuff, some people that don't, or if things will just implode eventually when I, I, I don't know, I'm curious on your thoughts, if anything's changed in the past year. Well, I mean, I'm not, so, we're not I'm not in academia, so hard to say. I mean, I have a lot of academic friends. What are you saying, Richard? Well, that, I think that's the point. Like me and you were at one point in academia and it repelled uh, people like me and Razib. And, uh, you know, there were other people that we knew at grad school who who liked it. Um, so I think that, um, no, I think academia, I think, is basically gone. I don't think it's going to be reformed. I mean, the just, okay, find one year where the DEI bureaucracy doesn't grow. Like if you want to see if the trend is like going anywhere, just like, you know, look for, look for one, you know, just look for, look for something small like that you know i don't think you're gonna see you're gonna see that i mean you you i think you know maybe you have some hope in like you know maybe state legislatures could do something because people hate the universities enough but you know i'm not hopeful that they're going to do that um you know i think if you're you know you want another metric like number of dei statements like the number of faculty jobs require dei statements like see if that ever goes down i don't know if it's gone up but i know it's it's high now and it used to be not so high so i think it's, it's steady or it's gone up so i would you know pick any metric you want i would be surprised if it doesn't continue you know remain about as woke as it is um or get get worse um now doesn't mean everything is you know uh you know the wokeness more general i'm 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 become very optimistic lately i mean elon musk buying twitter people are you know some people are like oh it's not a big deal like no it's a big deal twitter is a is a big deal twitter elected uh twitter elected trump um Twitter uh, basically, you know, is the reason our Ukraine policy is what it is. Uh, Twitter is basically Twitter is basically the is is the hive mind. I mean, it really shapes our reality. It's not the you know, it's not everything, but it's huge. Like one man coming and changing the uh, the content moderation policies is a really big deal. So you have that. I mean, you have you have Substack, which has taken a pretty uh, pretty um, stringent pro free speech position. So outside of the university, I mean, things are. Um, Things are getting in, things are getting interesting, and there's pushback um, within the universities. No, I mean, if I, you know, most people, if, if we want to be in a non woke environment, you know, people who thinking about academia, I say, you know, that that's not the place to go. You you need to go find something else. Um. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I will say is, uh, 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 I think it's different outside the United States. So I was actually talking to a Dutch colleague, a friend of mine. And uh, he had a joint appointment at an R1 university in the United States. Uh, but I'll just say where, because like, you guys won't be able to figure out who I'm talking about. It was at Wisconsin. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, COVID slowed everything down so that he was like remote and doing Zooms and all this stuff with his uh, grad students. But 
but it, it, he ended up not doing it because, like, you know, he's not, uh, he's not like conservative or anything, but he's just European and like he didn't understand any of this stuff and, you know, the hiring decisions. Let's just say there were things that he thought were unethical that were going on. And so he's just opted out. And actually, his wife is a refugee from the Bay Area, an American. And I had another conversation recently with a journalist who's been living in Madrid. Uh, he married a Spaniard, and he's still American, and he still does things. He publishes freelance mostly in the United States. But um, he says, like, you know, the expat community in, in Europe, uh, at least in Madrid, they're just like, what's going on in the United States? You know, most of these people, they live in Europe. So they're not country boys. They're pretty cosmopolitan, but they've been totally detached. So uh, I think there's like kind of like this like rapid evolution uh, to wokeness. Like Richard's talking about uh, self-selection. That's a big deal. Um, conformity is a really big deal, like way more than it was like a decade ago. Um, people are really, really conforming in a way that they didn't in the past. And so there's a lot of preference falsification. So I think ultimately the only way it's probably going to change is if someone like uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, if someone on high uh, starts to, to get in the way of the money train because, uh, you know, the money makes the world go around. And once once someone threatens that, then, you know, uh, there might be some issues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was lost, lost for the decade or the generation. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. There was a um, yeah. I mean, there's been some stuff at the state level, like uh, like uh, people trying to defund. Like, so University of Wyoming or the state of Wyoming, the Senate just defunded gender studies. Um, the House has to agree, and so it hasn't gone in, it gone through yet. But basically, some uh, state senator looked at the women's studies curriculum and said, you know, this this is this is madness. Why are we supporting this? So uh, you could imagine there's some states. I think like Tennessee has tried, like you know, the level of funding you get uh, as a student, like the uh, amount of aid is dependent on like studying a real subject. So I do think these are like you know, you can't starve the beast. I think it's always hard to cutting cutting government spending is always. Is always just the you know the law of politics. Even when you're ideologically like even the Republicans who ideologically are supposed to be against spending, even they tend not to cut much. Um, but if you can do that, then yeah, of course you can have an effect. Uh, Mr. Sherwin or Jeff, if you want to. Follow oh no, that, yeah, one. that's interesting. Thanks for the feedback. Yeah, sure. What's up, Sherwin? Hey, hey, Richard. Uh, just want to follow up on Elon. So how confident are you that Elon could actually implement changes on Twitter? I mean, you said like it is one of the most important social media or important things in the regime's view. So like how wouldn't they like push back strongly against Elon making any effective changes? Or do you think like they're just so incompetent that they couldn't really uh, push back? Well, who's going to push back? I mean, he's he wants to buy the company and he wants to take it private, right? I mean, that's <laughs> you know that that's 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 basically you know that that's what you do when you want to uh, change things. So they can probably push. You can have you can, you have a private company and your employees don't like doing something. Um, you can you could fire them. I mean, I, I don't think he has fear of doing that. So yeah, so I mean, he buys it, it goes through. He he takes it private. I you know there, there's there's no barrier here. I mean, it's really it's really a clear path to to making the. Uh, to making, uh, you know, the product better. Yeah, I was just thinking about the New York Times, like, hit piece on Elon, like, that came out two days ago. Like, would it be ramped up? Or, like, even if it, like, comes out now, like, hit pieces like that come out now, like, it, you know, do you think it would be effective? Like, people don't really 
trust media like New York Times anymore. So yeah. it might not be that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I saw a poll the other day, to the extent that polls matter here, it's like 60% of Americans support Elon Musk's takeover. Like Elon Musk is seen as, you know, somebody who's doing things really cool. You just talk to like normal people who aren't involved in politics. I mean, he is seen as someone who like sends rocket ships out. And it's not like the New York Times can, you know, just brainwash people. I mean, Trump, you know, Trump is something else. Trump is like, you know, a, a big crude guy who, who uh, just looks like, like an old racist, sexist guy who's, you know, you, you, people can see that's like, you know, a lot of people can see, oh, that's not the kind of person, you know, I want my, my kids to be. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's young, he's dynamic, he's doing, he's doing really interesting things. Um, no, I, I, I think that this can, yeah, I think, I think he, I think he'll be fine. I mean, if you have enough money and he has more money, I mean, he's orders of magnitude over the other billionaires that, you know, have their own, th you can do your own thing. I mean, you know, Charles Koch, Peter Thiel, I mean, they can, they can basically do their own thing. They could say whatever they want. They can support uh, whoever they want. I mean, Elon Musk, you know, his, he, I think he's the, the richest man in the richest man of, is he the richest man in the world or the richest man in the country or whatever? If he wants to devote a substantial part of that wealth, just a, just a fixing, just to fixing Twitter, there, there's no obvious, you know, there's no obvious way to stop him. Um, you know, it's more direct. Like you, you try to, like if he gave like a billion billions of dollars to some po politicians, you know, that's hard. The politicians have to go out there; they have to actually win the election. Then there's like all these things with like being in the legislature, like trying to pass laws. There's judges, there's courts, there's you know bureaucrats, uh, there's filibusters, and you know everything else in the world. You know, the you know the, the most direct path to fixing things is you know not many people can do this obviously because we don't have hundreds of billion dollars. It's just to just to buy it and make it better. Uh, so I'm yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic. You know, the market says the market doesn't say the deal is a, a sure thing, but you know, if the deal does go through, I'm very optimistic it's going to be better. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds optimistic. Thanks for that. Uh, I'll try a quick question for Razib. Uh, hey, I've been reading your uh, step series on your step stack. Like, I had a question. Why do you think like the Turkic speakers like were able to like replace like all the Indo-Europeans in Central Asia, like around 580? Like, yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, before I have a question for you, what's your Y chromosome haplogroup? Who, me? Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. Like, I haven't tested. I can't answer your question unless I know that you're R1A. That's like, <laughs> okay. Okay. Like, you, can't, you can't let the secret out. You can't let the secret out to some, you know, some literal peasants. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no. Right. no I could, I could be an H. I could be an H. That'd be your eternal enemy, right? Yeah. How does it feel? How does it? How does it feel being down there, huh? Uh, well, yeah, I'm the, you're in the, the same level now, so yeah, the, the, <laughs> no, I'm an R1A, bro. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, I think the key here is, um, you know, it's what is it like? Ibn Khaldun called it cooking. Uh, so the Turks, basically, the further east you go, uh, the eastern step. Um, is not as amenable to the agro part of agro pastoralism. So the Mongols, for example, in Genghis Khan, I mean Genghis Khan himself was a forager in his youth uh, when they kicked up, when they took his herds and stuff like that. Uh, so the Eastern Steppe uh, is not as amenable to settling down and becoming an agriculturalist. It wasn't as integrated uh, initially, at least until the rise of uh, Han Dynasty China into the Oikumene for civilized margins, and so. These populations were much less um, assimilated uh, into the sedentary lifestyle, which means that they're much more mobilizable uh, as surplus, uh, you know, soldiers basically as 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 military 
uh, you know, uh, nation at arms. And, you know, as you know, there's a strong male skew. So they're like highly mobile uh, and they want stuff. And so they'll take it um, as opposed to like the Western step became kind of uh, relatively tamed. Now, obviously, like, you know, you had groups like Sarmatians, Scythians, you know, later you had Tatars. The Western step is still a step ecologically. It's not like the Black Earth campaign. You know, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have like technology, modern ag- agricultural technology. But um, you had Russia to the north, you had the Ottomans to the south. You had a lot of scaffolding of civilized societies. And so these uh, step uh, polities were integrated into that world. Uh, they tended to engage in, you know, basically um, extract rents, uh, you know, kind of like live in a symbiotic relationship. The Turks were not like that. Uh, the original Turks, like the Oghuz, like all these early groups with like the Seljuks that came in, um, they basically busted through uh, the boundaries of the Islamic world, kind of like how the Vandals came over the Rhine, you know, in the early 400s. And uh, it's like an invasive species uh, in terms of their skills, their abilities. Uh, they took over, you know, in Iran, uh, between the Samanids, the Buyids and the Samanids, like 1000 AD, and uh, the Pahlavis in the 20th century, uh, Iran was never ruled by a Persian, really, for like a thousand years. It was almost all Turks. There's a few exceptions. There's some Afghans here and there. Stuff like that. Like, I think Nader Shah was... No, he was a Turk. But anyway, there were Turkic people uh, ruled, like, much of West Asia and obviously South Asia for so many centuries. And it's because they had a con- constant conveyor belt. Uh, the Mughals actually were still... Uh, they gave uh, they gave Turks from Central Asia uh, a higher stipend, a higher uh, salary, basically. The native Turks who had a higher salary than native Indian Muslims who had a higher salary... Actually, the Rajputs and Indian Muslims are kind of the same. But anyway, the point is um, the, the, the Turks were constantly coming from the interior uh, with their skills. And their skill is obviously, you know, fighting, uh, being soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if you just look at the ecology, if you look at the geography, the eastern steppe is just not as amenable uh, to any other lifestyle besides pastoralism. And in fact, a lot of the groups like the Western Mongols and you know, a lot of the population of Mongolia and Trans-Siberia region, which is where the Turks are from. So the Turks are from the Altai. Uh, the Yakuts are the northern, northeastern Turkic group. But really, they're from, like, western Mongolia. They're from the Altai uh, originally. And that area is not amenable to regular agriculture. Like, you're either a hunter-gatherer or you're a uh, pastoralist nomad. In contrast, like, the Don Dnieper region, uh, you can do agriculture around the rivers, uh, it's cold, but, you know, barley, other things, it, it's marginal, but you can do it. So I think that's why there was a shift towards the Eastern Steppe. Uh, Eastern Steppe only really came to the fore about after 500 BC, um, after the rise of China, because once you had China, you had uh, the ability for these steppe polities like the Zhangnu to develop a parasitic relationship where the elites could extract goods and services in a predatory manner from a large sedentary, uh, you know, quality civilization right so th- there needs to be a symbiosis like these step people they don't really enjoy just being poor nomads uh they enjoy stealing stuff from sedentary people uh basically protection money so um so i think that that's the answer to your question sure and is he is he gone did he go yeah uh right. yeah I, I let him go because i have a hard stop uh 
at, at the top of the hour. So, um, yeah, I know I see other questions in the, uh, in the live chat. I see other people, uh, somebody else waiting. Sorry. We'll, we'll do this again though. Um, yeah, yeah. Razib, it was yeah, great take having it you on. Yeah. And have a good yeah. weekend. Thanks. Thanks everyone.